Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Jack Hodgins. Today we'll be discussing viruses and the COVID pandemic. We are joined by Professor Brian Williams, Research Group Head of Cancer and Innate Immunity at the Hudson Institute of Medical Research. Professor Williams is a distinguished scientist and international authority on innate immunity and cancer biology, having contributed his own discoveries to his field. Hello, Brian, and welcome to the program. Hello, Jack. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Brian. When did you first hear of COVID-19 and what were your initial reactions? Um, yes, I first first heard about this from uh, one of my first PhD students, actually now a distinguished professor at the University of Toronto, who was carrying out a study in Wuhan at a hospital there. And she mentioned to me that uh, she's a virologist and an immunologist. And she mentioned to me that um, they were having these unusual in- infections, uh, a little bit different from just a standard uh, influenza. And she said it's likely that this is a uh, potentially a, a, a novel uh, coronavirus, and and that was subsequently confirmed. Coincidentally, she came and visited in February, and we discussed it a little bit further. And she was constantly taking phone calls from uh, uh, Wuhan about the study that they were doing, and uh, what they started to believe was that yes, it was a little bit like uh, seasonal flu, but perhaps a bit more serious feeling that we had at the time and my discussions with her was, yes, it may be uh, a bit more serious than flu, but let's just see how it pans out. Of course, it's turned out to be a lot more serious than seasonal flu. What makes this virus different to any other virus? Uh, This uh, virus is related to the original SARS virus where the outbreak occurred in the early 2000s. That one was mostly restricted in terms of its ability to spread effectively and efficiently. And I think this, this led to some mistakes early on. But it is a coronavirus, so it's a member of the coronavirus family. And its origin, of course, is still under debate. But the original SARS virus, the origin was pretty much confirmed to be in bats. And it likely jumped from bats to another host, then subsequently jumped to humans. So it's a member of, the, of that coronavirus family that then was also the family was also involved in, in a disease called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Disease. That was came apparent in carers of camels in, in the Middle East. That was also a pretty serious virus in terms of its ability to uh, have disease that resulted in death at a pretty high rate in that population. But neither the original SARS or nor MERS has uh, developed the ability to spread so rapidly as uh, SARS, uh, what is now termed SARS-CoV-2. And generally, what is a virus? Best, the best way to describe it is it's an intracellular parasite in a way. It has to infect a host cell. It's not able to replicate outside of a cell. And then it uses the cellular machinery to replicate, to grow, and then produce progeny, variant, what are called virions or virus particles. They're then able to escape from the cell and infect surrounding cells. And then, of course, they can eventually escape out into the environment and infect uh, uh, animals, including humans. The virus family, though, is very, very widespread. There are viruses in the oceans. There are viruses in plants. There are viruses in pretty much every living organism can have their own individual viruses. So they're very, uh, very successful in terms of their ability to infect as I mentioned, uh, almost every living organism and take advantage of the machinery inside an organism to uh, reproduce and and spread. Are viruses alive or have any consciousness of any kind? No, no, not at all. They're really entirely dependent on on their ability to find 
a particular host and then replicate within that host. Why do you think we have viruses? They're a very ancient uh, life form that have developed over many millions of years and have co-evolved with all uh, other life forms. Similar to, in some ways, to fungi and uh, other life forms, they've found a niche within the uh, living population to be able to establish. Of course, many viruses are not uh, lethal. Obviously, if they're lethal, then... uh, they, they can pretty quickly uh, lose their ability to uh, infect other hosts because they run out of, they run out of hosts. So there ends up being a, an interesting relationship there where uh, viruses establish themselves, can replicate, but don't necessarily uh, kill their hosts. And that's usually the case with most viruses. Let's talk a little bit about your career. When did you first start becoming interested in the field you now work in? back in New Zealand in the 1970s, so a very long time ago. I wasn't so much interested in, 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 uh, in particular viruses per se, but I was interested in cellular responses to virus infection. So what does a cell do when a virus comes along and infect it? Does a cell have any mechanisms of defense? So that was the sort of thing that interested in me uh, very early on, as I said, mentioned during my PhD studies. How long do you expect the COVID pandemic to last? Is it going to be decade-defining? Uh, look, it certainly will. I mean, I think we can look at really the way we deal with seasonal flu. And I think what we'll be doing is dealing with COVID outbreak for a, for a very long time. It's likely that these uh, coronaviruses of the, of the SARS variety will continue to evolve. We can see the strains that are currently running rampant and then worldwide is the Delta strain. So there'll be other strains that come along and it, it will become you know, endemic in human populations, and we'll have to deal with this with vaccination uh, to keep it under control. I think you, you can see that the way we deal with the regular seasonal flu is, is through regular vaccinations on an annual basis, and we will be doing the same uh, with uh, SARS-CoV-2. What makes the Delta strain different to the other strains? It's a much more efficient virus in terms of its ability to replicate. It's about 60% more infectious. Those are the estimates. So it's able to infect individuals much more efficiently and it's able to be passed from one individual to another much more effectively than the, than the previous strains, the alpha beta strains of the virus. And that, that's just the, the nature of things when you don't have a, uh, a vaccinated population. This is why it's very important to get vaccines rolled out as soon as possible. And uh, we were a little bit slow in Australia, but you can see even in vaccinated populations, uh, the Delta strain is still able to infect the vaccinated individual, but those individuals uh, don't usually get very sick and, they, uh, and are not often hospitalised. And they don't produce anything like the same virus load as an unvaccinated individual. So you have less spread in a vaccinated population than you do in an unvaccinated population. It sounds like with COVID that we're going to have to live with it through vaccinations, much like we do currently with the flu vaccinations. Yes, I think vaccination is certainly, um, what's been quite remarkable is the way vaccination has come into play so quickly. We wouldn't have imagined doing anything like this before the outbreak of this particular infection. It just took so long for vaccines to be produced. Pharmaceutical companies weren't all that interested in vaccination because it wasn't economic for them to get engaged. A lot of vaccination programs had to be funded from the public purse. But now with new technologies, particularly mRNA vaccines, this means that we can rapidly produce new vaccines in a matter of months rather than years. And that's the way that we will be able to keep on top of this uh, this 
virus. But having said that, I think it's still very important to develop and work on developing drugs that also combat the virus infection. So if somebody can be detected as being infected very early on in the stage of infection, then you can have uh, drugs that are developed that can interfere with this replicative stage of the virus. And just as an example, drugs have been developed to combat uh, hepatitis C virus infection. It's taken a long time, but there are now efficient drugs that are able to do that. And of course, the story we all know about is drugs that were developed to combat HIV. Um, Again, it took a very long time to develop these drugs. They're not without side effects, but they've been very, very effective in reducing the uh, mortality and morbidity we see with HIV infections. So that's there needs to be a, a considerable amount of effort put into developing uh, new drugs in addition to um, continually modifying uh, vaccines. Now a year and a half into the pandemic, what are we doing well and what do we need to work on? Well, I think finally we've got the vaccination uh, strategy um, working. We were slow to begin with uh, for a number of reasons. The government decided to uh, only to buy in a uh, uh, well, local vaccine that was a very promising vaccine uh, out of Queensland, but unfortunately it, it had some issues that were prevented it from developing further. And then, of course, they also, and I think quite rightly, uh, in, invested in the AstraZeneca vaccine. Early on, I thought that was a very promising vaccine. And then the RNA vaccine, they really didn't invest in as much as they perhaps could have, but it's all very well looking in hindsight to this. But I think we're we're doing well now with the, the vaccine uh, rollout, encouraging more people. Um, the vaccine supply, particularly of AstraZeneca, is there's, there's many doses of AstraZeneca available to vaccinate the population. Uh, people just need to be encouraged, encouraged to go out and, and get vaccinated. So I'm hoping that by the end of the year, we'll have uh, the vaccination rates will be up to a level where we can start to see a relaxation in some of the lockdowns that we're currently uh, suffering under. Uh, where we're not doing so well is investing in the research in Australia. I think that's been uh, it's been a little bit slow. There's been uh, quite a bit of activity and research uh, monies have been in- invested, and quite rightly so, in, in some uh, well-known uh, research organisations. But there others have been uh, sort of left in limbo a little bit. I mean, it's interesting that Australia has a, a very, very active virology community, but I don't see a lot of uh, investment uh, research dollars going into virology. I'm not a virologist, and my, my, my role is in innate immunity, but I think that investment in virology research has, has been a little bit lacking. Could have been more investment also into vaccinology. We had the Queensland vaccine, which I mentioned, very, was very promising. Um, the government invested some funds in that, but hopefully... Uh, Queensland Group, I know, are continuing their research and hopefully they'll be, come up, be able to come up with a, a new edition of their particular vaccine that, that will prove successful. So we need to keep investing in those sorts of areas. What makes the different vaccines on the market at the moment different from each other? Just the way they're produced. So some of the vaccines have relied on a, a harmless virus as their, as their backbone, if you like. That's a more traditional way, uh, and that's the case of the AstraZeneca vaccine. The other approach with Pfizer and Moderna has been to use mRNA-based vaccines. Now, So this is messenger RNA that encodes a, a protein, and that particular protein is the spike protein, which is the protein that the SARS-CoV-2 virus uses to infect cells. 
So that's a newer type of technology, and it's been uh, been very very successful. And the other the other the other thing about uh, those vaccines, the the messenger RNA vaccines, it's relatively easy, at least from a laboratory point of view, to introduce any mutations that occur in say the different variants. Now now the Delta variant, it's relatively easy to introduce those containing those mutations, introduce those into the backbone of these messenger RNAs, and then establish a new vaccine. You're listening to Wellbeing, where we are discussing viruses and the COVID pandemic. My guest today is Professor Brian Williams. Even though there's such strong medical evidence supporting vaccines, why do you think even in Australia are there people that are anti-vax? There are some history lessons here that maybe these people need to be introduced to. And one of the easiest ways of doing that is to just take them along for a trip into some of the cemeteries that have graves that particularly in the late Victorian times, and then have a look at the number of children that are listed on those gravestones and how, how young they are. I mean, that is a very good indication. And, and, then, and then have a look at some modern graves. And the, the real difference there is these graves they often contain families. The children are quite young when they die, and they inevitably died of infectious diseases, not just virus infections, but also other infectious diseases. And what has changed, why there is a difference, is entirely the result of the production of vaccines and vaccination. So that, that is one way of, of educating them. I mean, it's basically just explaining this is, this is why this difference exists. You know, and, and I think uh, it's it really very difficult to argue with people who have uh, an anti-vaccination mentality, but you have to illustrate these differences to them and, and let them come to their own conclusion with respect to yes, see the uh, see this as, as a as a, a very good example of the introduction of vaccination being extraordinarily uh, helpful to really the survival of, of, of humans on this planet. I think it was the Pfizer vaccine where there were a few cases of blood clotting. Why would something like that occur? Uh, not with Pfizer. No, that Pfizer Pfizer. Um, Pfizer does have side effects, but it's not uh, blood clotting. So the blood clotting was uh, seen as a very rare event with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And this was really un- unexpected un- in terms of anything that in-, in the way of how this vaccine was developed. But it turns out that there's an antibody produced that in- interferes with a blood clotting factor. And that results in it, and very rare, um, it's you know less than one in a hundred thousand that you you see this effect, uh, because but because it was unexpected, um, there was some panic initially. First of all, people didn't know how to detect it, and secondly, um, some deaths occurred as a result of this. But when you had a look at the the, the number of deaths that occurred, it's it's around about one in a million, and the incidence is around about one in a hundred thousand. It's a rare event. And now it's known how to detect this very early on. And it was seen, the other thing that was seen, it was seen in younger populations. And this is why the advice is that uh, when people under the age of 50 or, or younger um, are seeking to get a vaccination, if they get vaccinated with AstraZeneca, they should at least uh, seek some medical advice around that. Talk to their GP, for example, or talk to a, a medical professional just to see if there's anything in their history that would um, potentially be an issue with respect to them getting that vaccine. Now, I think the, the 
issue in Australia was that when this occurred, we had very, very low rates of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so, you know, there was a balancing act there between, well, okay, this is one in a million deaths. At that stage, it wasn't clear just what the death rate was, but it's about one in a million as a side effect of this vaccine. Um, And yet we had almost no SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, there was a sort of a a risk established there and and some of the... uh, I think there was some commentary around that, uh, whereby it was better not to get vaccinated with uh, AstraZeneca because your risk of dying from SARS-CoV-2 was less than the risk of dying from uh, the the vaccine. But, I mean, this has changed substantially now. And uh, as I said, uh, the the risk is now recognised. It can be detected early if somebody's been vaccinated. And the risk of death from SARS-CoV-2 is much greater than uh, the risk from um, vaccine. With how viruses work, how effective are lockdowns? Uh, with this particular virus, they're very effective because that was another. It was another bit of a delay in dealing with this outbreak. Was the realization that it, it was very effectively spread by aerosol, so rather than by droplet droplet infection. So it was a spread by tiny particles flying through the air. Some significant difference. And this is why there was a debate about the wearing of masks early on, and there was a focus on uh, hand hand washing and uh, wiping down surfaces. So we now know that while we should still do those sorts of things, it's much more effective to um, have social distancing and mask wearing. Now, and that that was fine uh, with the earlier strains of the virus, but with the Delta strain, as I said, it's about 60% more infectious. Uh, becomes a different um, a different situation. So lockdowns, uh, we know, uh, were very very effective uh, last year, and particularly in Victoria, in shutting down infection. Although lockdowns have continued for a long time, uh, it took a long time to get on top of that. For the Delta strain, we know that it's unless the lockdowns are applied very early, then the Delta strain has been able to overcome. Uh, the lockdown situation, and that's uh, very apparent now in New South Wales uh, versus Victoria. In Victoria, the, the infection rates are still, uh, they're worrying, but they're um, still quite low. I think there's 80-odd cases the last couple of days per day, uh, whereas uh, New South Wales now now over 1,000 cases uh, per day. So it's uh, lockdowns still need to be um, maintained, but the worry, worry in New South Wales, and it has been the worry in uh, in Victoria as well, is that if the number of the number of cases uh, can the healthcare system cope uh, with the number of uh, hospitalisations? That's where um, we still have to maintain, I think, uh, lockdowns for for some significant time. And uh, you know, there's a debate about um, when the lockdown should ease. Should it be 70% vaccination or 80% vaccination? I mean, I'd much prefer that if we're at 80% vaccination before we have easing of lockdowns. It's been a minor change in New South Wales, I think, despite the fact they had a thousand cases. Um, they, they're allowing some outdoor gatherings, uh, from what I've, what I've read. I think what we've probably read as well, seen in the news. Um, I don't think um, I wouldn't be doing that, but that in any way, that's, their, that's the decision of, of their health experts and politicians, um, and they'll have to live with the outcome. Would the idea of a COVID passport be a solution to having less lockdowns? So I think that's going to come anyway, and you could see that uh, that's being rolled out in, uh, in in different workplaces. 
and and it is mandated in in some situations um, in the aged care sector. Now it's man, mandated for aged care aged care workers, and it, and I think you're going to see those mandates extended. And these these mandates follow on from other mandates. For example, often healthcare organisations have mandates for seasonal flu vaccinations and other vaccinations um, for the staff, depending on what functions the staff perform. Uh, and then you're also seeing that um, there's been an announcement of Qantas, for example, that they want all their staff vaccinated. So I think you're going to see that's going to be driving vaccinations in a number of workplaces. And at the same time, I think what you're going to see is what has happened elsewhere is that the different venues are going to require vaccinations if you want if you want to attend a particular function. That is what's happened in uh, the UK. Um, it's happening more and more in the US, uh, where you've got to produce either evidence of vaccination or of having a recent um, uh, COVID, you know, a COVID test within the last so many hours, 72 hours or something like that. You're listening to Wellbeing, where we are discussing viruses and the COVID pandemic. My guest today is Professor Brian Williams. Is COVID just the first of many pandemics to follow? Peter Doherty has, uh, has been a long proponent of, you know, we're just sitting here waiting for the next pandemic. Now, we all thought it would have been uh, flu. Um, now we know these coronaviruses are going to be with us uh, for a long time. There are other viruses out there potentially, um, maybe not uh, not yet, but there are other viruses out there that could also spur a pandemic. So I think that we that if there's anything good that's come out of this particular pandemic is that we're now going to be much better prepared. We now have new uh, vaccine strategies, uh, which which is very very uh, welcome. I'm hoping that we'll have the development of antiviral drugs that are uh, much more effective, uh, particularly if given early on, and do not have attendant side effects. So I think we're going to there are there will be more pandemics. I think the bottom line is we're going to be much better prepared than we have been in the past. Um, but having said that, we still have to get this current pandemic under control, and and I think that uh, we're getting to the stage of certainly dealing with it. If not uh, effectively, um, we're sort of dealing with it in certain countries, um, mostly high-income countries, uh, quite well. But we really need to be able to get the vaccines out to many other nations that do not have anything like the level of healthcare that we have. You can't have this uh, particular virus circulating in in countries, as I said, that don't have a healthcare facility that we ca- that we enjoy healthcare system that we enjoy, you must uh, get the vaccines out there and give these countries the ability to uh, deal with uh, the current pandemic. What would be the take-home from this interview you'd want people to remember the most? Well, first of all, get vaccinated. The other thing is promote the funding of research in Australia. We do not fund research to anything like the extent uh, that our partners do in the U.S. Canada, the UK, the funding levels are woefully inadequate. The other thing that's become very apparent with the pandemic is the loss of uh, international students. Um, now, why, what's that got to do with research funding? Well, those international students and the fees they paid underpin an enormous amount of research in the universities, and that's now gone. So I would encourage 
Australians to convince their politicians that they need to increase the research budget in Australia. Um, and that will enable us to much better deal with any future, well, a current outbreak, but any future outbreaks. Thank you for sharing your insight with us today, Brian. We appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome, Jack, and um, I hope you're vaccinated, and if you're not, I encourage you to. My guest today was Professor Brian Williams, Research Group Head of Cancer and Innate Immunity at the Hudson Institute of Medical Research. Thank you for listening. I'm Jack Hodgins, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.